Welcome to the Future of Education, a show where we consider what our education system should look like in 20 years. I'm your host, Lee Elberson, and I ask you to join me on a journey to the future as experts from the Charlottesville community explore our education system through a variety of different lenses. Today, I'm joined by none other than Sarah Johnson, who has dedicated her life to helping students pave the path to success in education. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, would you mind giving us um, a little bit more uh, background on you and uh, how your role relates to education today? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version. Um, inspired early on by several people. Um, I think back on my fifth grade teacher who um, would send me to the kindergarten classroom to help the teacher during um, the lunch periods and breaks. Um, the, that sort of got my world um, as with education as a possibility, with teaching and being in the classroom. Um, from there, um, I would go and work um, when I was 13 or 14 at um, a child care center and I would design a, a, a school within the school. Um, and that was a really kind of imaginative way of designing schools and thinking about education. I am public school background. Um, I grew up in Indiana. I went to, my high school was actually the first high school built in the state of Indiana in Southern Indiana near Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and so um, public school is a big part of my own personal education background. Um, fell in love with peer tutoring. I had um, a phenomenal science teacher who inspired me um, to go and work with, with my peers and, and teaching how to read, um, which I did all through junior high and high school. Um, and, and probably from the very, very beginning, maybe the earliest um, was my own grandfather who had a, a limited education um, constantly would talk about the value of education, um, wrote a ton in journals, told a ton of stories over his life. Um, and it just kind of always stuck, right? The idea and value of education and what it can do for a person and what it can bring to one's life. Um, and so with all of that, it was probably no surprise that um, I, I made the choice to go to college um, and, um, and I actually have pursued the arts and I earned my terminal degree in MFA with the plans of teaching in higher ed. That was where I was going. Um, and um, ultimately landed at a small independent school. And, um, and I can talk about that story later perhaps, but um, um, have been here for a really long time, first as a teacher and now as a head of school. That's great. Well, so thinking back to whenever you were younger, when, when you had that impact uh, from your, your teacher, did you think then that, hey, I'm going to be a teacher or I really want to be involved in the school system? Or did it just flourish your uh, desire to, to, to go to higher ed? No, I, I always knew I would retire from education. I, I knew it from the very beginning. I didn't know in what capacity. Um, I didn't know if it would be with little kids. I never in a million years thought it would be with teenagers in high school um, but that is where my heart is. And, um, and I'm so glad I've been able to find that. I did think it was going to be in higher ed, um, at one point. 
Um, and that was sort of the path and plan I was on. I, my plan was to graduate with my terminal degree and get a job in the field. Um, and so that, that's where I was headed and then sort of found a new course um, while I was sort of headed that direction. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you have any decision points uh, during your life where you were thinking, I want to go and, 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 and go back and serve in the public schools versus going in into an independent school? I definitely have thought about that. Uh, I mean, that's where, I don't know, that's just where, like I said, that's the roots of who I am and, and the teachers that I had who inspired me the most were from public schools. Um, but when I, when I came to Renaissance School, when I really was here, that I found the ability to bring in this passion and the freedom to be able to teach it at the pace that the students needed it sometimes faster, sometimes slower, depending on the year and the group. Um, it just made the work so much more inspiring and it made the opportunities and possibilities so much greater. And so that was where I, I really kind of saw what independent schools could be and started to understand um, just the potential of what a great independent school could be. Yeah, I've always thought of especially small independent schools as being very agile and nimble, similar to like small startup culture, mm -hmm. as opposed to a much bigger system, maybe a large public school system is, is kind of like the Microsoft of the world where it's just very slow moving. There's a lot of bureaucracy mm -hmm. um, that it takes to, to make changes. Um, yeah, so I, would, for, yeah. I would even say just to piggyback a little bit, I, I think that we have the ability to be responsive. And I think that's the, the word I would use. I mean, responsive to what's happening in our community, responsive to what's happening within the school and around the school. Um, I think that is one of the greatest strengths of a, of a small school. Yeah. Sarah, tell us a little bit about the day-to-day the -day of uh, a head of a, a small independent school. <laughs> There's a lot of hats that happen <laughs> in a small school. Uh, this morning, I was the school counselor. Um, <laughs> This afternoon, we had, you know, our weekly faculty meeting, um, you know, working, you know, through the budgets and it really with, you know, with most headships, I think, especially with independent schools, a big part of the work is balancing how do you sort of run a school community and build a school community and develop a school community, as well as having this sort of one eye on the business side of it, right, which is a big part of a small school. Um, we want to be here forever. And so we have to make sure that we're able to be and we want to serve as many kids as we possibly can um, who will thrive here. And so it's so a day in the life has, <laughs> is quite hectic. Um, I, I, you know, I was saying earlier, I was like shoving a sandwich right before this because I had no breaks. But um, I think that's why I've been here so long because it's it's constantly changing and you have to have a willingness to think outside of the box on how to problem solve. And um, it just is exciting to be around. Yeah. You know, something I, I struggle with is, uh, you know, I got into uh, tutoring because I really love working with students. I love that one, that personal impact that you, that you make with them. And then as you advance through an organization and now as the CEO, I think there's a lot of parallels in the types of like planning and decision I have to make. And I, I always try to find balance between like being that technician and actually seeing that enjoyment with a student mm -hmm. versus 
it's just a different type of enjoyment at the higher level. How, how do you balance that of like getting the joy of working with students versus the, the, the high, the, the high level picture of running yeah. an organization? It was really important to me to work with students and stay and not sort of be a head of school that sits in the room that, you know, just deals with disciplinary issues. Um, and so for, for me, that meant teaching. And so I, um, I continued to teach college counseling, which is something I was doing a little bit of before um, sort of taking on the headship role. Um, and, and what I do is I, the students have a college counseling class every year. And so I get to spend every week with every single one of the students in a small group setting. And so it, I'm able, you know, when it's time to talk about PSATs, we're able to talk about the stress of it. They sort of have the sense of, you know, group and community feel. So um, I have stayed in the classroom all of these years. Um, I, like I said, I teach every single student once a week um, in, in the college counseling capacity. Yeah. Well, one, one quick question about um, the, the wearing many hats, because I feel like in a small organization, certainly the, the head of the school or CEO wears many hats, but probably your staff do as well. Mm -hmm. And so what, what are the advantages of wearing many hats and sort of creating generalists in an education environment? I think that's key. I think it's, you learn how to collaborate. You learn about partnerships. You, you learn that there are other ways to do things, which makes you a better teacher, right, when, when you do that. So really working together is a big part of what we do. Um, in fact, even in the, in the summers, all of our teachers, art, sciences, humanities, all come together and plan curriculum together. And it's how we ensure that we're teaching across disciplines and connect, making those physical connections ourselves um, and making sure that they're happening in the classrooms as well, because if we, we sort of compartmentalize ourselves, then it's just it really we are not doing a service to the students or to education as a whole and the potential for what it could be. Um, and so in that way the, the teachers um, really do have to sort of have an ability to be flexible. Uh, we have a, an awesome leadership team um, and several of the members who are on the leadership team. Um, are part-time teachers, part-time administrators. And it's the same idea of, of keeping those who are in leadership positions in a school, keeping them in the classroom so that we're not losing sight of what our students' experiences um, and we're not losing sight of, of what our school culture is. Yeah, it's something you hit on, I think you, you talked about how this environment helps the students. It, it sounds like you know, leading by example and showing that collaboration amongst the staff, that probably trickles down to the students. If mm -hmm. they see the teachers collaborating, then they are more likely to collaborate amongst themselves. Absolutely. And, and I think they also see how much we respect one another as adults. Um, and, and so they then are also, they're seeing the gifts and values and strengths in one another. And it's not just, oh, there's those kids and these kids. Um, they really are able to see one another in the same way that the adults are. Um, and we do, we come to the table with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. And we genuinely are excited to hear what ideas are happening in the classroom and what, what are we bringing and what's the newest topic and what's the next book and all of those great things. Yeah, it, um, 
something that that comes to mind that when I when I listen to the way that your staff collaborates and 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 the 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 hats that they wear at, at Claiborne we've we've had a difficult time putting together an organizational chart do do you guys find that it's tough to to create a hierarchical structure when you do collaborate in the way that you do I, in the beginning yes um I think that it it oftentimes would land on one person, usually the head, where they were sort of constantly trying to, to just fix everything because it was easier. Um, in the past few years, we've created a, a leadership model for the school and we really, it was time for us to do that. Um, and it really made specific roles more clear. Um, and, and it allows us to, to collaborate more deeply um, because it's not one or two people knowing a lot of little things. It's people who really are specialized in one focus of this area, focus of the school, but are coming together to hear how the other ideas might better what the work that they're doing um, or improve or, right, or help them to reconfigure some things. Great. Well, thanks so much for that insight. Uh, I'd like us to, to move forward and, and let's talk about a historical review of education. So, I'll start it off with a question you and I talked about before. So compared to 20 years ago, what strides do you think have been made in our education system? Uh, this, this question, I, you know, I was trying to think like, where was I 20 years ago? So, <laughs> and what, what did it look like? And so some of the things that came to mind um, right away was the, the obvious technology component. Um, you know, I think this year in particular, it's just been heightened even more so because we've really had to lean on technology. Um, I am a teacher in my classroom. I tell the students they're writing notes, not typing notes. And, um, and so, you know, being sort of forced to sort of sit with them and have this divider between us was a new norm we had to adapt to. Um, but there, there have been huge benefits to the technology component um, and for educators having access to content and media um, when it was far more challenging in the past. Um, I think the other thing that we do so much better now is we have a, a much clearer understanding of the many ways that students think and learn. Um, and that can really impact how we develop our curriculum. And that I think is part, especially in a school study, setting of the responsive um, ability that, that we can have. Um, um, I also think that we're better at being aware of the significant impact of outside influences that, that students have um, in their learning experience. Um, so just centering students more, um, than, than sort of centering, you know, the needs of SOLs or the needs of, right, the AP timing or whatever it is, just so that we're a little bit um, more mindful of those things. Yes, in, in listening to you talk about the last two things, do you think um, empathy has, has increased amongst like educators and, and maybe, yeah, even students in the last 20 years? I, I would say, a hundred percent, yes. In the context that I'm working in, um, I worry about the broader context of um, because in the past twenty years it was a really test-driven society, and so I do worry about um, empathy being lost a little bit in that. Um, I, I am hopeful that we are on a turn 
um, as a society, as a country towards greater empathy for students, especially after the past year and a half that we've had. Yeah. Uh, thinking about the technology component, you know, I, there definitely have been significant strides. You know, I, I, what I see students struggle with sometimes is it, we're actually entering in an, we've entered an age of, of too much information. It's kind of like mm -hmm. drinking from a fire hose. So how do you, like, how do small independent schools help students curate the appropriate resources so they don't feel overwhelmed? And, you know, if you Google something, you get the 20 million results. And you're like, which yeah. one of these should I trust? Yeah, that's, it's a complicated one. I mean, because it, we, we openly talk about it. I mean, I think in, in this particular school, again, just our size helps with that. Um, we openly talk about the rabbit holes. And so we do, I, I, we try to pay close attention when a student's spending, when we find out that they're spending so much time on homework, like what's happening and, and are they kind of digging a little deeper than they need to, are they being really distracted? Um, and so we're just, we, we try to manage that and walk them through and how to, how to control that. And. I have right this group is teenagers. So the other piece is like, I also need them to gain some level of independence and um, ownership of what they do. And so for here, like I said, it's a lot of just talking about, you know, what's going on. Um, and again, it, it, each teacher in the classrooms here have the choice on whether or not they allow a computer. I, I, I don't, I just don't want the divider and the distraction. Um, it's been harder this year and I, I've had to kind of let that down a little bit, but um, it's something that is really important. And it's a skill learning to make eye contact with the teacher and learning to um, engage and learning to be in a classroom and be present and take notes and all of those things. I am 100% behind you with the concept of, of presence. I found, yeah, especially in the last 20 years, the devices are designed by manufacturers who are trying to distract you with a lot of different things mm -hmm. and always give you notifications for everything. So even picking up a computer or picking up a phone, you have that training that like you're going to want to click on the next thing. And so I think, yeah, in some ways we've gotten away from being in a room and giving someone a hundred percent of your attention. And I, I firmly believe that you should be taking notes in a tactile way on a piece mm -hmm. of paper instead of having a computer open because you might feel distracted by anything, even if your computer's in airplane mode or your phone's in airplane yeah. mode. Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for sure. We, we, do, we don't have phones in the classroom, but we all know you can get texts and messages <laughs> through your computers. And so it's just learning how to manage. And, and part of our job is we have four years with students and we want them to learn about time and place. And we want them to learn how to, you know, be able to focus in a classroom. And, um, and so it's just making sure they have those skill sets when they leave so they can be successful either in a job or in college. Yeah. Sarah, what are, what are some of the unique challenges that small independent schools have faced in the last 20 years? Um, that's a good one. Um, you know, I think size is always um, hard because it is it limits your budget, right? We don't have state funding coming in, right? Our budget is set by by tuition. And so if you say, you know, we want to serve a small, a smaller population, because that's what we can do really well. And, um, and we know it works, um, then 
you know, we have to sort of be willing to take that on. On, I think, you know, really, so juggling that the, you know, managing the business side of a small school um, and being creative and fundraising and leaning on community and saying, okay, you know, our, our parents run our biggest fundraising event. Um, and it's a way for them to engage with the school community. Um, that's really fun and it's um, exciting and it's kind of an all school thing. Um, but that's, you know, that builds us and that is, you know, a really important piece. And so um, I think that that has been a challenge. Um, I think it will continue to be a challenge, um, especially right now, um, given the past year that we have. Um, although um, admissions is doing really great for a lot of independent schools. Um, yeah, I think those, those have been the hard for really probably the hardest parts. Yeah. It, at the beginning of COVID, when I was asked about some of the changes that were upcoming in school systems, I that my immediate thought was that the value proposition for independent schools has never been higher, yeah. especially assuming that they would be in person and, and could pretty much continue on with very similar educational structure yes. as they did before. Yeah. No, it very much is true. I mean, we we it was business as usual, school day as usual. Um, with very little compromise, um, you know, we, we, the students can still switch between the classes, the desks are set up differently, right? Like that's, that's why it feels different. Um, you know, I think they miss being able to give each other a hug. And I think they miss being able to, you know, be in a classroom and see each other's expressions, you know, like reading between the lines. It's a really great, great thing. And, and I think they miss that. And, um, but they're being really amazing with patience and, and understanding. And, um, and I think just gratitude for the fact that they can be in person and have been all year. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you said it was rough, roughly business as usual, but I'm sure there were some learning lessons. So if you could go back and tell the Sarah of, March 13th, 2020, a couple of tips, what would you tell her? <laughs> uh, it's going to be a long haul because March 13th, we were hoping it was two weeks. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so oh, so really uh, we were planning for longer, but hoping for shorter. Um, you know, the thing, I think the thing that, that we did really, really well is literally at the center of every decision and this has been true just as a school in general, but really for the past um, year and a half um, was centering the students and trying to understand their experience. And we can't get it right 100%. And we can't get, you know, we, we can't just cater to every single individual needs, but we really centered students and teachers and trying to make sure that they knew they had people to lean on that they would go on virtual walks with each other, that we would have time and we designated time to cook together and to take pictures together and um, just not lose sight of how much we cared and loved for each other. Um, and so that was, so I think if I were to tell myself anything is um, really probably to value the time that we're gonna have in this new environment um, and, and not worry so much about, um, you know, it, it, you just worry so much about what's next, what's next. I mean, you, the whole time as a head, the whole time you're constantly waiting for the next thing to drop and, and what are you going to have to write? What's, what's the next protocol you're going to have to build in and what's the next, right. And how can we get these kids back here safely? Cause we know they want to be, 
we know they need to be, we know our teachers need to be here so that, you know, just know it was for the long haul. And <laughs> um, I, I probably could have used a nap or two in the past year and a half. So oh, um, yeah. encourage that once in a while, but um, yeah. Awesome. Well, before we move on to the next section, I have saved, I think, the best question for last. So a question I I get a lot, and I'm I'm sure you get a lot, us in the college preparatory space is like, what do you think college, like, what do you think students get out of a college degree that that justifies the cost? That's a good question. All right. So I'll preface my answer because I think it's really important to understand the context with which I speak. Um, And so I mentioned my grandfather with limited education. So um, I am a first generation college graduate and um, in our family and that um, that had a unique set of challenges, including figuring out costs. Um, And then as someone who was trying to navigate how to pay for college myself, um, I really had to think about the value. What is the point of this? right? Why am I doing this? Why am I spending so much money? Why am I getting in debt? Because I wasn't like I had a savings, right? Um, and so, so I think that part, for me, I, I, I understood it's what I needed to move to a space um, and to reach the goals that I had for myself. I, I, could, I felt like I could see where I was headed um, and the limitations of not having an education and what those limitations were going to be. Um, you know, both of my parents did um, a phenomenal job in their own career paths, but it was a different time. And you could move up just through hard work and commitment to the, to the job. Um, and that's, it's not the same right now. It's the same way that, you know, my public school experience is not the same, you know, public schools aren't run the same way that they used to be. Um, and so for me, it just, it really became obvious. And I do, I believe for so many kids, especially in first generation situations, um, it is college is an opportunity to really change a path and to change the opportunities that you would maybe not have otherwise. And, um, I, I really, I come from a space where I really believe in, in what college can bring. I also am very clear that it's not for everyone. And I'm extremely clear that not everybody has the opportunities to go um, because it is not easy. What I want to do though, is have a school um, here where we're able to educate kids on how college can be affordable and it can be achievable even when it seems insurmountable. And so that's a really important message and, and even if I have students in the classroom who, you know, have family members who are going to pay for their college or trust funds or whatever it is, um, we really talk about how do you, how can you pay for school if you're on your own? And I open with, I'm assuming all of you are paying for your own. And so we, we really kind of walk through the different ways, um, starting very early on. Um, and so anyway, it, it's, it's a long process and I just don't want it to be intimidating. And I want I want kids to understand that if they have the desire to go, it's achievable. We can figure it out and um, they have a space to, to be able to navigate that. Um, I, it's so much so that I um, pre-COVID would do workshops at the libraries to help um, first generation families and um, 
and families going into public schools not knowing how to ask certain questions and what questions to ask. And, um, and it was all revolved around college counseling. Yes, yeah. And I think there's, there's many arguments in, in favor of first-generation college students being able to break the poverty cycle by going mm -hmm. to college and, and having those opportunities. Um, in, in thinking about that, do you think, well, what I hear sometimes is, I, I think many times we associate success with going to college. And mm -hmm. do you think in some ways our society overemphasizes that and, and students don't see a, a two-year degree or a community college or even a technical school as, as being an alternative pathway to success? I think it's, it's in how we talk about college, for sure. Um, I think it's, it's trying to remove the stigma of, of a community college experience. I think it's, um, it's communicating that it's okay to take time before you go to college or to not go. I mean, that's also um, perfectly fine and, and um, an important piece of this. Um, so I, so I think, yes, I think that we have to be open. We're lucky. I mean, in this area, PBCC is a fantastic option. And I think, you know, we have, we like openly like guys, listen, if like, if I think if I had that kind of choice, I might've, I don't know, maybe, but, um, but it was like, let's really like the PBCC and then you're guaranteed into write with certain GPA, like, come on, yeah. save, let's save some money. But, um, but we have to talk about that, right? It, it, we just have to say, this is a really viable option and it's, and it's totally fine. And so um, having kids have choices to go all over, but it's also saying, you know, let's not get sticker shock, right? If you do choose to go, you, let's, let's not get sticker shock because oftentimes you're not paying that final price. Yeah, great plug for PVCC. We're having Frank Freeman yeah. on the show. He'll be on in two weeks, so that's great. He'll go. probably love to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's that's a great way to frame it. Okay, let's uh, put our future hats on. Okay. So we're gonna think about twenty years in the future. We're gonna you know try to imagine a, a really bright future and, and think about what we want our education system to look like in twenty years. So. Sarah, what, what are some of the things you'd like to see major advances in, in 20 years, assuming that we could create the space we wanted? Um, I, I, I think I was mentioning this earlier. I, I, the, the irony of asking this question in the midst of what, what we've been calling the twin pandemics with um, the global health pandemic and the national race pandemic, um, it's a heavy question, right? Like there's, there's a lot of work we need to do. We, there's a lot of work schools need to do, um, especially because 20 years from now, our current students are the next round of leaders. And, um, and we have to be sort of really in, engaged in that. And so I think if I were to think around the next 20 years, um, there would be a couple of things. Um, accessibility to schools that are a good fit. I think that's a really important option, um, not just in, in neighborhood, but also um, and, and school culture and community and what, what a child is looking for. Um, I think we need to be um, really progressive in our consideration of the role of standardized tests, um, thinking about APs and SATs um, and college prep curriculum, um, the, the cost factor, all of those things that play into it, that complicate it. Um, and I think where we probably 
most schools, certainly most independent schools really need to focus on making sure there are diverse voices and positions of leaderships within the schools. I think that is, is something that um, there's just sort of been this checkbox mentality for so long and, and that's not enough. And, and we need to really make work and effort towards making sure we are having lots of perspectives and decision-making positions at the table. So a follow-up to that, Sarah's gr great answer. Do you think in, in, in 20 years, if we made intentional changes, we would see less emphasis on like standardized tests and grades, and we would find a more holistic way to, to, to benchmark, benchmark students and prepare them for the future? Yeah, I think, I think about this a lot, again, because of the role of college counseling. How can we, you know, how do you best present a student to, to a college that, um, that you can see or feel is a good fit? And how do you ensure that? And I think, you know, tests provide something, like it's the only part, tests and, and transcripts too, arguably, um, it's the only sort of quantitative measure on the application, you really, you're looking at numbers and, um, and, and sort of clumping categories by numbers. And it's, it's such a flawed system in admissions. Um, and yet it's the easiest part. It's one of the easiest right, like indicators. And so um, it's hard to sort through like, what does a kid's essay say about them? That's hard. What does um, what does this letter of recommendation, what's the teacher saying between the lines, right? <laughs> that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, there was already um, an article, um, a research presented by Harvard's graduate school um, called Turning the Tide. And, and, um, and it was a really kind of powerful piece. And we talk about it in, in college counseling, actually, I talk about it with the parents too, but um, there was a shift towards test optional pre-pandemic. And, and schools were really thinking about it more every year, more and more schools were, were uh, being added to the test optional kind of list. And um, the pandemic really shoved us in that direction. And those schools that were sort of tinkering with the idea were forced to say, okay, let's put it in play and see what happens. Um, I'm hopeful that more and more are going to stay in test optional. Um, I think the, the stressors that are added every time, I mean, I see it right in our, right? Like we offer the SAT in the school building. So it's right in our face how they're feeling before and after. And, um, and, and you walk away and like this, this is not the indicator. Like I know this kid and I've seen this kid in the classroom. And so, yes, it's just one piece and, and, and whatever, but it is probably the most controversial, stressful piece, um, on that application. And so then you've got to ask yourself, well, why is that? And, and part two, is that necessary, right? And, and what does it even tell us? And so um, I have a pretty strong opinion, <laughs> but uh, it's ironically, especially as a college counselor. Yeah, well, and I, I think thinking about it from an admissions counselor side, and we're going to have Valerie Gregory on next week, and um, sure, she'll have some thoughts on it. But from a, a college ad admissions uh, department standpoint, is more data better? Is it best mm -hmm. to just give them all the data points and then allow them to read between the lines? Because I'm guessing it's a it's a manpower infiltration issue. Mm -hmm. they, they're trying to set students up 
for success at their school and and they need they're looking for some sort of metric to say can this student does the student have the sufficient background and 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 the appropriate level of rigor or appropriate level of of endurance to be able to go through the rigor of this college so is it should we be giving them more data so sure yes i do think that um but i think quantifying it by numbers may be the wrong way because when the student looks at numbers and starts comparing it it becomes problematic um, and so I, and that's where I think the stress comes from. What is my score? Did I beat my last one? What if I didn't? What does that mean about me? Am I getting worse? Do, what did I write? Like, that's where it becomes problematic. So I, I don't, it's not that we need a space to compare, right? Some sort of level of apples to apples, right? But does it need to be driven by numbers? Does it, right? Like, how can we do this in a way that actually is more reflective of what the student knows? And, so, and, and also stop thinking of it as what the student's potential is, right? Whether or not they'll fit in or survive or whatever. The, I don't even remember what the language used to be. And I don't think it's so much now, but it used to be along those lines. Um, and so it's just, it really is trying to navigate that um, and finding a more, just be a little more creative in how we provide more data. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I 100% agree. And, and I run a test prep organization. Yeah. And so when people ask me what I think about standardized tests, I say something similar. I say, you know, I think an unbiased, easily accessible benchmark to, to help uh, determine or to help benchmark students from maybe coming from Louisiana versus from California, I think is a great idea. You know, that test does not exist yeah. and, I, and it, it is probably mostly hypothetical because it will be created by human beings who will have some sort of biases. But um, yeah, I do, I do would like to give the counselors more data. And so mm -hmm. I, I wonder if, you know, maybe a partial solution to this is to increase the budget of, a, of college admissions departments. Do you think that would help give a more holistic picture and they could get more students in to tell their story. Cause that's probably what's missing is you're always boiling it down to what somebody can submit and, and yeah. how much time they have to submit it and, and, and some yes. sort of metric. So. No, I, I would agree that that, that could be one of the many possible solutions for it, for sure. Um, having more, I think because it takes longer to do the holistic approach and then, right, then the concern is, okay, now are we submitting October 15th or October 1st? Like how early into the senior year are we submitting these things, which means they have less time with a counselor or less time, right, to, to navigate this and, and stress is already high entering your senior year. Um, and so, yes, I think, you know, potentially having more in the admissions, more readers, more people sort of working together in certain regions that are higher populated, perhaps, um, could be one of the solutions. Yeah, you know, I, something I often think about, Sarah, is this, the, the hierarchy of uh, available jobs, and then the degrees being issued by universities, and then trickling down to what are we testing in our school systems and, and, and benchmarking students and do all of those line up perfectly. So uh, what, is your, what are your thoughts about like the available jobs that are there versus the degrees being offered that, that are being issued by universities? Well, you're asking someone with two art degrees. So <laughs> let's preface it with that. Um, 
I think there's great, sometimes, you know, part of college really is not just about the degree. Part of it is, um, we talk a little bit about this here, part of it is it's, it's a really kind of, it's a transitional period of time, right? You have a lot of resources that you're able to easily find that in the adult world is a little bit harder to find. Um, and so there, there is that period of time, you have counselors that are accessible, you have advisors, you have peers that you can kind of lean on. Um, you're navigating, you know, things like how to feed yourself and how to find your way home, right? Like some really yeah. basic stuff. Um, and so that, in, in that way, it plays, I think, a really kind of important role as well. Um, it's, you know, with the jobs, so, so many now are, are, have some college experience or some, right? And it doesn't really matter where. I think they're just wanting to see um, that engagement of, of um, higher learning or, or, um, or thinking sort of more within an engaged discipline. Um, and I, and again, I, I sort of opened my comment with, I have two art degrees there. I could not, and I, I've spoken and written about this. I could not have thought of better academic background, tr background training for a head work than, than an art background. It's constant creative problem solving. It's being able to listen to critical feedback that's designed to help things get better. Um, all of this happens in, in an um, sort of arts background, um, thinking about, you know, budgets and grant writing. It's how, you know, artists learn to, to work. And so, right. So um, I don't know. It's just kind of ironic that um, so much of, of my work that I do, I lean completely into what I learned um, all those years ago um, in art school. Yeah, I mean, I also this is coming from somebody who's got multiple degrees in physics and never ended up in academia. So it sounds like what you're talking about, I, I think, is what we call the college experience, right? It's everything mm -hmm. outside of just sitting in a classroom and actually learning physics or, or learning about art. And and I think to me, a lot of that is it's it's being able to complete something in, in a deadline mm -hmm. and having some sort of self-accountability structure to, to meet those deadlines, right? There's a lot of mm -hmm. unstructured time in college, and that's opposed to, to high school where it, there, there was a lot of structure involved. And mm -hmm. I, I think that experience does prepare you for the job world. Um, and I think it, in many cases, I, I see that we treat every degree as if it's like a, a medical degree. Like if you're going to get a medical degree, you're going to be a doctor. You probably need all of that. If you're going to be a mechanical engineer, you're probably going to design things and, and you're going to do that. Um, but there's a lot of degrees that, you know, you're going to learn about problem solving and that can be useful to many different fields. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, now, I, I, uh, so I'm actually a doctoral student right now, a full-time student at Penn, um, which is a lot of juggling. And, um, and I had a student ask me why, and she was like, you're already the head. And, and she knows that, I, I mean, this is what I do and this is what my life will be um, because I, I love the work. And, and it's like, you, you know, it's because I believe in lifelong learning, completely believe in the importance of lifelong learning. Um, and I always think we can do better and be better. And, um, and so taking advantage of opportunities and rethinking how are we doing things now and what can we, how can we shift and how should we do it better? We just can't sort of rest, right? We can't just sort of, I don't know, just sit and um, let it get stale. Um, I think it's really important to constantly rethink, okay, what did that work? And, and what do we wanna build off of the parts that did work and how do we wanna get better? 
um, as a school, as a community, as people, as a human, for me professionally, all of those things. Well, uh, that's great because uh, I have a follow-up question there. If I were to, uh, to give you all of the resources that you are given at Penn and, and give you some, some videos and, and you would basically have everything that's available to you there, how likely is it that you would finish those materials in the same time period you would under the structure of Penn? Does that question make sense? Oh, that's okay. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No. I wouldn't be, and, and here's, here's why. I mean, I, I have wanted and have tried to force myself into writing and researching and, and um, publishing more for years. And it always is what gets put on the back burner. Um, and being in a program that really sort of is like, you are going to do this and this is important and you have ideas that are valuable and, and need to be shared and you wanna hear other ideas and again, solidify your own. and. Um, it really, it has forced me to remember that, um, that, that voices in this field are important to, to, to be put out and, um, and to stay sort of current. Um, and so that's, that's been a big part. It was always easy to put this thing that I always wanted to do on the back burner to take care of other things. And now it's kind of forcing me to balance it all um, in a healthy way. Yeah, I think you're hitting on what I, I think is a major value proposition of, of school systems in general, regardless of whether it's public or independent mm -hmm. school. And that's it's structure and accountability, right? Mm -hmm. Every human being, I think, thrives in an environment where there is structure and accountability. And even the, the most determined person is, is going to reprioritize things and think, uh, this is urgent. I really need to do this. Whereas if you, if you have that structure in place and you know you have those deadlines, you think, yeah okay, well, I, I need to keep this priority at, at a certain level. Yeah. So yeah, great answer, because I, I experienced <laughs> the same thing. Uh, I've been trying to go through this Coursera course now for about three months, and it should have taken me three weeks. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I had to shift my thinking, because we, we've talked about this at our Penn cohort too. It, that work is my me time, right? That's the stuff I love to think about and research and, and write about. Um, and so when, when you stop thinking of it as like this thing I have to do, rather this thing I get to do, um, it's just, it makes it so much better. And it's so much, the, the program I do is um, a practitioner researcher. So the work I do here is of value to the research I'm providing there. So um, it's just so much sort of intermingled. Yeah. All right, still a couple more questions on future thinking. All right, so we're in this future uh, and the education system has put Sarah Johnson as the um, head of education for the entire planet. Um, okay. So it's great. So it, it, with all those things being true, what do you think the class of 2041 has that the class of 2021 does not with all these changes um, that we put into place? <laughs> so... First and foremost, sort of piggybacking off of what we were just talking about, a true kind of love of learning um, where it's not driven um, by grades and scores. And it is really driven by, you know, excited and passionate teachers in the classroom who are just wanting to share this thing they love and get others excited about it. Um, it's where students have voice in the classroom and um, can share their ideas. Um, and so the idea of, of just love of learning beyond grades and, and resumes, um, that just pressure cooker situation that, that we're still in um, and we've been in um, for a very long time. 
Um, I would also love to see student, um, an increase in student in, um, civic engagement within their communities. We're, we have an urban campus, so our um, sort of surrounding community is of great value to us. Um, our you know, front yard is, is, a, um, is really the park across the street in front of the courthouse. And um, it's just really important that we are engaged in partnerships and collaborations and, um, and just histories and understandings of where we are. So those are, those are probably things I would love to see continued growth towards. Yeah. And that's an excellent segue into in, in thinking about the future. What does collaboration look like amongst educational institutions, small independent schools, public schools, nonprofits, for-profit places like Claiborne? How, how do we all collaborate in the future? Yeah, collaborations is, it can be hard if, if members are close to the idea. Um, it's, I think it has to be coming to a table together and, and putting egos and agendas aside and, re, and having the ability to listen, right, to one another. Um, when, when COVID hit for us, one of the things that we, we were like, okay, what can we do, right? Like we're, we're really good at working. We're really good at college prep and we're really good at working with teenagers. So we can't like, it, it wouldn't make any sense for us to like reach out in the community and, and serve populations that we're, we just have no experience with. Um, and so for us collaborating um, look like um, forming a program where um, students who are public high school students who really kind of in COVID times lost some of their motivation, um, maybe are more at risk right now of, of not going to college when they were really on a path towards college. Um, and, and forming and proposing um, a program for them and for those students um, and asking the, the board, thankfully, um, was really open to this and using the resources we have here and the teachers motivated just by making sure, um, not just like the private school, right? Like making sure our community members um, who might um, just want some help with refocusing um, have access to it and, and it's, you know, their choice to take advantage of that or not, but um, making sure it's at least here in our town um, was really important. And so I think, you know, it just having a willingness um, for that we also, the independent schools in the area have partnered for a really long time. Um, we have something called the, the CAIS and um, Charlottesville Area Independent Schools. And um, pre-COVID, we met, you know, once a quarter and had lunch together at each other's campuses. <laughs> and um, post-COVID, we meet every week on Zoom, um, still have lunch together on Zoom. But um, just making sure that, you know, it sort of first became this just great collaboration place, right? A moment where we sort of have a shared common experience and um, profession. And it really started to become a space where we were able to kind of check in on one another, um, see what questions or translations of whatever the CDC is putting out. Like, what did you think of this? Is this what this means? So just having that space um, where we can share information and share um, other readings and research that we're finding. And as we were trying to navigate so much in our own schools. Um, and so that's, that's been helpful too. So I, I am a huge advocate of collaboration and partnerships um, and working with downtown partners and all of those things. Yeah. 
you know, you're so great at these segues. Maybe I'll have you start hosting yeah. the show. You always segue <laughs> into the next section so well, because now you're talking about actionable things that you're already doing in terms of, of collaborating, like you said, with CHS and then just amongst independent schools. So uh, last week when I had uh, Brian Henley on, uh, sorry, Brian uh, Eberly on from Henley Middle School, he and I were discussing the idea of like a, a symposium, basically where we get the stakeholders together and start talking about actionable things that we can do. And when I had Juan Diego on, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, having a line item in, in, the, in the city's budget to help take care of transportation for students to try to get more interaction among students. So if we were to, to have something like a, like a symposium, uh, how would we, like, what stakeholders would we get from the community that would help us collaborate across our educational institutions better? Oh. Well, so, I, so I'm really interested in, so this is gonna be like a, a selfish symposium, I guess, cause I'm gonna tell you what I would like. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, as someone who can speak about what if you, your child just is not fit in, in a public school? What does it look like? What are your options? Um, so, and, 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 and really helping to articulate and communicate affordability um, for other choices. I, I think, I, I mean, growing up, like I said, we were public school um, and really only understood that was the option. Um, and, and even when I have two kids, um, I had to like remind myself, even though I'm ahead of an of a independent school, when we were making the choice to move from public to independent school, I had to remind myself not to get sticker shocked, right? Because I, I, that's just a, a thing. Um, and so someone who can speak on, I think, affordability, someone who can speak on um, what do these options mean? What, what is independent school? What is this thing? What is charter school, right? What is public school? So really, what is homeschool? What is unschool, right? Like, what are all these things? Um, so I think having people who can sort of represent that in a way that's, that's not a sales pitch, that's just sort of, this is what it is. Um, I think, you know, of course, talking about, um, I mean, my interest is, is speaking to a, a population who really doesn't know much about college preparedness um, because no one else in the family has done it. And, um, and so I, I would be really interested in, in those conversations as well. Good, I'm gonna remember that when I start or okay. organizing the symposiums, I'm basically <laughs> counting you in already. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think um, oftentimes I, I feel like I'm a bit of an education hub because I get a lot of parents who will come to me and say, hey, we are pulling our kid out of this school. What, what are our options? And I think I'm just a guy who runs a tutoring company, you know, like I, I'm not meant to be a hub, but I try as best I can to connect them with various resources. And I think that would be extremely important for us if we all get together to think about where's the hub that we mm -hmm. can just have educational resources that provides yeah, options of affordability mm -hmm. and, and yeah, by that same means, maybe equity and saying, hey, you, did you know Renaissance offers this sub program, you mm -hmm. can all take a few classes at tandem, and then you can do this at K-Tech, and then that way people can piece together what, what works well for their students' specific needs. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think that's a great idea. 
Um, we have a couple of really interesting questions, but before we get to those, thanks everyone for asking, by the way. I'm, I'm curious about how project-based learning fits into this. So we talked, we talked about, you know, maybe there's overemphasis on, on grades and standardized test scores. Sarah, do you think project-based learning is one, put, one way to move that effort forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I love project-based learning. Um, we, we have two years that students have to do independent study and research and they, they propose from the beginning what their ideas are. Um, and there's, you know, projects, papers, all these things that are kind of incorporated into it. Um, I think, you know, how you, how you navigate the communication of that work is, is in essence what, what I think um, College Board is challenged with, with how do you communicate scoring, right, in a way that's not numerical. And so how are we assessing skills? How are we assessing um, you know, creative thinking and collaboration and things that are really valuable to a, a college community or job community. Um, and I think that, you know, it just doesn't translate the way that we do it now. And, um, and I think project-based learning, because it's something that's familiar and digestible to a, a lot of um, educational leaders has probably the greatest potential to help shift um, a conversation um, at the college board level on what does assessment, what can assessment look like? Yeah, I, I, I feel like sometimes there's hesitancy in our school systems to, to make radical changes like that because mm -hmm. it would take us like 10 to 15, 20 mm -hmm. years to, 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 to look at research, the outcomes, yep. and then realize whether or not it was useful. Mm -hmm. So how, yeah, how do we move that forward? It sounds like you're, we're doing that at Renaissance. Is there a, a way to do that in, in a broad spectrum of schools and saying, hey, let's implement this and, and have every student do a year of, or, or half of like five credits of project-based learning? Like, is there a way to do that across the entire nation? Yeah, I think schools are trying. I think that some are trying to figure out how to do that. There are definitely independent schools. We're not the only one who does it. There are definitely independent schools um, around here who have um, a year or two of independent research. Um, and and I think and I and I know public schools are trying because um, I've heard some of the programs that have been proposed. Um, I, I would encourage schools to really to communicate um, public and private. There are a lot of initiatives that smaller schools do that can be translated to bigger schools that we've already done the test runs. We've figured out what doesn't work and what does. So, right, like, let's talk about that. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, really that piece, it is translatable. I don't know what the, what the quick and easy answer is to it, um, but there has to be a willingness to say, okay, what we're doing isn't working. Right, like you have to, again, it comes back to like, let's put ego aside and say, okay, this isn't working. Um, and then how do we, how do we think outside of the box? Cause all the ways we did in the past also didn't work, right? So how do we come at this with fresh eyes and, and maybe new eyes in some cases? Yeah, excellent. All right, we definitely have time for a couple questions. Okay. Uh, all right, we'll start off. Uh, Blake always tunes in and he always has great questions, but they're a bit verbose. So I'm going to try to paraphrase okay. here, Blake. Uh, he's basically asking uh, how nimble should colleges be with offering industry specific jobs living in an age of 
automation and these, these quickly evolving fields, you know, do we need to start getting more specific with what we're training our, our the students in colleges to do and get away from maybe physics and, and, and uh, art and say, hey, we need to start training people for these this, this constantly evolving fields that are coming up? Um, I didn't, is he asking like starting to train them earlier than college or is no, just starting to like, all, like starting offer more robust degree programs in college that, that, that tailor them to the jobs available. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's interesting. There's, but I also do think there's something to be gained about, I mean, it, for, for our guys, they have to take so many arts classes because what you learn in that context is really different than if you only focus on science and math. Um, learning how to defend an idea is a skill set you learn very obviously in a critique in an art classroom. And it's, some, it's a skill set you need in the job and workforce. It's a skill set you need in the, in the sciences and humanities where you're constantly kind of sharing and, and working together. Um, so I, I, I would be hesitant to sort of pull that out of the equation to add in more special, you know, specialized focus um, areas. Um, I definitely hear what he's saying. I think that's part of why um, graduate degrees have been on the rise um, lately as well. And the idea of five-year masters and all that. Um, that's a really, that there's a lot of right uh, um, pros and cons to, to that thinking for sure. I like that question. I'd have to give it a lot more thought. Yeah. Uh, and then a final question is, uh, a, a mom reached out and said that they are considering going into either a small independent school or, or putting together a homeschooling package. And, and she wanted to know what are some of the considerations she should be thinking of um, in, in making this decision? Um, well, my focus is high school. And, and I think um, having a, and this is, she may not like it, but I do think having a student in um, a traditional school setting is, is helpful if the child is college bound, for instance, um, having a transcript that um, um, is sort of rooted in, uh, is a familiar transcript on the, on the college end. Um, there's the social piece, there's the time management piece, there's the learning from faculty who are um, trained in their field um, and in and, and, for here, at least I can speak for here, um, you know, the faculty are, are trained in what they teach, which is very similar to a college setting. Learning how to, you know, operate and move around space and time without, um, without bells or reminders, like it's, right, learning to be more independent um, and learning to navigate those social relationships and reading cues. And those are key, key factors that happen that, that, you know, really we've been concerned with in COVID times when so much learning went online, those are real development factors that were in jeopardy. Um, and we don't know the implications this early on, it's too soon to know, but what happens when, when you're sort of removed from that group? And I know homeschools also have groups and cohorts and stuff like that, that they work as well. Um, our challenge when we have a student who comes in mid high school career um, from uh, a homeschool is just trying to make sure what gaps are there. Are there any gaps um, in any of the traditional classes and, and what holes do we need to fill before um, they have to sit down with something like the PSAT and, and that sort of thing. So sometimes it can raise a lot of questions 
um, even on the high school end of things, um, and and then especially on the college end of things. Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Uh, and just uh, to, to remind everyone, this video will be available on Facebook and the audio will be available on all of the podcast formats, uh, Spotify, Google, and, and Apple. And uh, ask everyone to tune in next week when we, when we will be joined by Valerie Gregory, who has recently retired from UVA admissions. Um, and if you're watching this later, please, please feel free to ask questions. If you have any questions for Sarah, you can find her on, on LinkedIn, but you can also ask them to me and I'll relay them to Sarah. I'm sure she'd be happy to, to talk about it. Um, and just from both of us, we encourage everyone to stay positive and keep reaching out for help. Mm -hmm. Remember that we are all in this together. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please listen to our other episodes to gain further insight into the future of education.